1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hi there. This is Joe Krolder with the New Books Network. And today I get to talk to a brilliant historian from Manchester University, uh, Professor Edmund Smith. Hello, Edmund.
0: Hi, Joe. Uh, Thank you very much for having me along. It's a pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Um, We're going to be talking to Edmund Smith uh, about his fantastic book, um, which just came out Uh, called Merchants. I jumped on the chance to talk about merchants in the community that shaped England's trade and empire, 1550 to 1650. Um, Let let me ask you this first question, Uh, Edmund. Who is Edmund Smith?
0: (laughs) Um, That's a great question. Um, So I think As you've said, I'm obviously the author of this new book, Merchants, um, which we'll be talking about today. Um, But beyond that, what I I guess I am is an historian of economic cultures. So that's, I think, maybe a slightly unfamiliar combination of interests, uh, the economy and the cultural side coming together. And what it really means is that I'm motivated by the big questions, I guess. Uh, What is capitalism? How does it work? Why does globalization look the way it does? And that sort of thing. But to answer those questions, I think we, we need to take an examination, not just the systems that created these, but the behaviors and the people that were involved within them. So try to bring in that cultural element, understand how people thought and felt uh, and communicated, and engaged with each other. Um, as a means of understanding these sort of bigger economic systemic questions that are so important. Um, and this book, but also my wider work, and I guess me in general, um, is all about trying to connect those different things, to to connect the systems with the behaviours, um, and to understand, I hope, uh, economic development in a slightly different way um, by drawing these connections. Um, and that's what really I set out with the book to try and achieve.
1: You know, ab- absolutely important that, there's a turn in economic history a turn towards the cultural side of it and and how people manage to i don't know congeal or come together and operate in an economic system that's changing and morphing every single day so that's that's why this book really speaks to me and and uh well i I got to ask you why did you become interested in history in the first place
0: well i think history is something I've always been interested in, in a sort of personal sense. Uh, It wasn't by any means my favourite subject at school, if I'm completely honest. Um, (laughs) I preferred maths, I preferred science. Um, But history was always there as something, you know, it's the, history is the effort, I suppose, to understand humanity. And that always fascinated me, whether it was ancient civilizations or, you know, the contemporary or near, more near contemporary history of places like Birmingham where I grew up, uh, and seeing in things like the museums and the heritage sites around there, this sort of different world that was so different, but also shaped the one that I was currently living in and growing up in. Um and also I think it's such a great source of stories. It's just it it's interesting, it's entertaining. Um As well as being difficult and emotional at times, and that I think just it drags you in. And as I said, the the way that I approach history is maybe something that there are still attachments there to some of the maths and the science um, interests uh, of earlier days, and I find it very enjoyable to to sort of think about different ways that we can engage with the past using some of those methods. Um, And on the financial side, merchants specifically, I had the great fortune uh, of graduating from my undergraduate degree straight into the financial crisis. Um, And I think that that was a motivating factor, I think in shifting the focus of my work towards finance, the economy, understanding how these communities work. Um, And where I've come since is very much, I think, still trying to answer some of those questions. Um, And doing so in both domestic, but also, a global sort of context. I'd still love to be able to do more work about some of the other parts of the world that were so inspiring to learn about when I was younger, reading about them for the first time. Um, And bringing, one of the great things about being an academic researcher is the chance that sometimes you can go down those rabbit holes and still ask new questions about weird things um, (laughs) and bring them together.
1: Yeah, I'm just so shocked by, um, uh... I, I guess what you just explained—the book itself—is kind of chasing down the roots to uh, our modern system, and uh, and and all the faults that are in, you know within our modern system. But I, I really got a kick out of it, and and, I, and thank you for answering the question I was going to ask. As is why this book—I think you did that very very well. Thank you so much. <clears throat> um. There is something that that you wrote uh, in your in your book uh, early on um, that you wish to kind of trace out the commercial lives of merchants and who they were and how they operated, um, and I'm wondering if you felt that you succeeded in, in doing that.
0: <laughs> Good question. Um, I think the the whole book really the way it develops, or at least the way I think it develops, is to try and show sort of the life cycles of merchant life. Um, The first chapter talks about education and the development of particular behaviors and ways of doing business and what it meant to be a merchant in a sort of cultural and professional sense. Before the later chapters work through how merchants work together day to day, how they formed corporations, how they interact with the state. And in my mind, there's an element there of that's showing the maturation of either individual merchants or the merchant community through from these sort of early days as apprentices, as merchants in training, through to the possibility of them becoming you know, diplomats or engaging with the crown or running an empire. Um, so I think in that respect, it does succeed in what I wanted in terms of engaging with what is merchant life. I think there are elements that I could have certainly gone further in that aspect and if I was writing this a little bit more about communities of the middling sort or of businesses in England, then there would have been more, I think, about merchants in terms of the way they live day to day at home, their relationships with their own families, rather than the push back towards understanding the impact of these uh, The way in which merchants lived on their economic activities, and I think that's that is the focus of the book. It returns to these economic questions throughout, rather than perhaps asking slightly different questions um, about mercantile life in the early modern world.
1: Um, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Oh no, I was just. uh, I'd like. I think it would be great. My next project. um, I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time thinking about the relationship between merchant communities and the wider business community in England. Um, and that I'm hoping will give me a chance to to get into some of these questions in a little bit more detail.
1: Well, I think uh, I think you kind of do that in this book though. I mean, we need to celebrate that. It, it, okay, so here's uh, an introduction that you wrote. You use this uh, merchant named William Turner and you kind of borrowed a line from, I think it's uh, Keith Wrightston. Um, where you wrote that merchants belong to more than one corporate body. Um, So instead of a wide, you know, there's a wide variety of communities and institutions, activities, relationships. And, and then you wrote it here. It's just a tangled messy scheme of overlapping, intersecting social networks. I mean, I, I, I just, I think it's these networks that always fascinated me um, and I'm wondering if 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 you were taken by how many networks these folks belong to
0: yeah absolutely i mean the the overlapping networks are, are key really to the book why one of the things I wanted to absolutely make sure I did was not continue perhaps a fairly common theme whereby we look at individual corporations or one part of Britain's trade or empire and instead understand how they intersected. So recognising that East India Company merchants were quite likely to also belong to the Spanish company or the merchant adventurers, the Levant Company, provided a means of showing the ways in which um, not only merchants interacted with each other and formed these networks and communities, but also the next step of that was acknowledging that if they're able to cross between all these different corporations and communities, then they must have had the behaviors, uh, they must have had the skills necessary to do so. These corporations were therefore acting in similar ways, had similar expectations, and the merchant profession was something that was far more communal, far more part of these messy tangled networks than perhaps is sometimes appreciated. Um, I think the next step of that within the book was thinking about Stepping back, as I said before, to thinking about mercantile education, Um, although I don't spend much time talking about merchant backgrounds before they become apprentices, I try to start by thinking at the age of normally around 17 or 18, when a merchant became an apprentice or a future merchant became an apprentice, where were they doing this? Who were they interacting with? What sorts of relationships or what sort of life might they have lived during this period of their lives where they're, you know, They're a merchant in formation. They're developing these skills, uh, these ways of viewing the world, these relationships, and for the first time, dipping their toes into this tangled skein, as Wrightson puts it. Um, And I think that's vitally important for understanding this community as a whole. Um, And also important for understanding the, the ways in which Britain's trade and empire and economic development took place in an environment where we can't just keep our focus on a single individual or a corporation because clearly the sort of economic uh, either commercial revolution or financial revolution or whatever revolutionary uh, process that we want to uh, ascribe to this period or the following century, these are things that are taking place across society. And thinking about networks and thinking about connections, um, in my mind at least, is a really important and useful way of thinking about society as a whole, but without losing that important human dimension. I think with networks, we don't end up with a situation where we shift back to these monolithic blocks. We don't look for a whole faction doing the same thing, but perhaps are more able to remember that within these communities, within every corporation, within every facet of empire, there are hundreds of individuals. And to get to grips with understanding how that particular system works, we have to understand those people as individuals with their own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh with, returning to a previous
1: point. Yes, absolutely. I you know, the thing that that um that you brought up is the training and and what they were being trained to do as, as an apprentice. Usually, you know, we think of apprentices as okay, he's a shoemaker apprentice or a printer apprentice, but here we're talking about The Apprenticeship of a Merchant, which I never really conceived of until I read your book, Um, but they're trained to become, as I think as you put it, to become citizens of an urban community, Um, and I wondered if you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, so perhaps this isn't uh, as well uh, known in terms of when we think about corporations, I think we typically think about business corporations um, as a way of organizing particular commercial activities but in early modern England corporations were also used to organize uh, other activities one of which was urban society. Um, Phil Withington's written a brilliant book uh, a few years ago about the rise of urban corporations in Britain in the 16th century and what and before and what this meant was that places like London or Bristol or York, had corporate entities that oversaw the running of that particular city. And to become a member in that corporation meant becoming a citizen of that particular city and therefore a citizen of the wider country. And generally speaking, apprenticeship was a key or important route into obtaining your citizenship, firstly in a livery company or a guild where you completed your uh, training, and then in the wider urban community within that belonged, within which that belonged. So, apprenticeship there is something that is—it is about training, uh, and I could say more about this um, in terms of becoming a merchant, but it's also training about how to be part of a wider society. Um, ensuring that you act civilly towards others, that you're capable of participating in elections or taking a position as an officer in the urban corporation or your livery company or your trading company, and being responsible for the lives of other people and their livelihoods. Uh, And I think that's something with apprenticeship or even maybe education more broadly that um, is a little unfamiliar. There's this, uh, or perhaps it is more familiar in in the United States context um, from what some of my colleagues. Uh, have told me here at Manchester but this notion that education one of its important roles is in developing people as effective and responsible participants in society as citizens and there's clearly a, a strong aspect uh, of that sort of thought process within the way in which apprenticeships were structured in the merchant community
1: and And one of the things that I found fascinating is um we're teaching these citizens to be virtuous. They have to have gentleness and humility when they're talking with others, uh, whether it's domestically or or overseas. And I was and I, I got to thinking about this can can anybody actually teach someone such virtue? I mean these these apprentices uh, I would guess come from. Pretty well-to-do families, and that have to have some sort of verve and, you know, feeling good about themselves. Maybe type A personalities. And how can you teach someone such such virtues as gentleness and humility?
0: Yeah, um, good question. Again, um, I think the backgrounds of merchants are are fairly uh, broad in some circumstances, in the sense that I think we see lots of merchants. Uh, merchant apprentices coming from backgrounds uh, in sort of skilled crafts as well as in trade um, and some from other professions too um, but I think if it's how do you teach people gentleness and humility there are, there are two aspects really that I think are important to remember um, that I talk about in the book the first of which is that if you want to be successful as a merchant there is an element where gentleness humility civility is absolutely essential when you're operating overseas. These are merchants being sent, say, to Spain, where they will have to live and operate within a Catholic country or to the Ottoman Empire within an Islamic country. And in doing so, interact within different legal systems alongside people with different beliefs, different cultures. And the advice to young merchants is that by showing humility, by making sure you respect or at least don't actively offend the people that you're trying to do business with, you stand a better chance of success. And there's that clear sort of uh, motivation for humility as a means of personally benefiting from the situation that I think is worth remembering. Um, this is clearly sort of a profit-focused motivating factor. The second point, and this is the one that I spent Uh, I think, quite a lot of time talking about, and it's important for understanding the role in which corporations played in society, was that an awful lot of these trading corporations or livery corporations provided disciplinary structures for ensuring that their members followed these particular rules. So if somebody acted without humility or was uncivil, then there is a good chance that they would be, if they were reported, that they would be fined, um, that they could be punished by other means. If it got really bad, they could be kicked out of the company and denied access to the trade that was their livelihood. Um, And this is something we see happening repeated times, both domestically in England and also overseas. As young merchants or older merchants, or even the family members of merchants, if they stepped outside this expected sort of behavioural atmosphere, if they started acting in uncivil ways, it was likely uh, and certainly possible that they would suffer as a consequence. So I think we have there the sort of the two explanatory factors. One is that it's self-serving in many respects to act in these ways. And that's why they're promoted in the first place, of course. Merchants want to ensure that their factors overseas don't cause offense and don't destroy relationships that have taken years to build. Therefore, they ask them to act in this civil manner. Um, And secondly... There's the the dis- disciplinary element and the two come together I think to to generate a set of behavioral standards that are fairly consistently applied across the mercantile community
1: yeah I I just don't see how the rise of merchants uh, as pointed out in your book uh, could have gone forward with without these regulations without these rules without accountability um, and and I just don't see it happening in any other way. Those those rules are necessary, you know. Um, and then one of the things I found so interesting is that when an apprentice is promoted to become a factor, let's say, overseas, um, they have to put in a bond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the bond, it, it, it's not necessarily universal. Some merchants don't demand it, but especially for trades where there's a significant chance of people perhaps participating in private trade or illegal activity, um, then yeah, absolutely. Merchants will insist on their factors, putting forward a bond uh, on the basis of good behavior. Um, And that's something that would also be applied to other types of employees. So ship captains would be expected to pay a bond so that if they then smuggled goods or acted inappropriately, they would lose out on those funds. and it's just another part of these disciplinary procedures. I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right in pointing out that these were necessary institutional forms during this period, and that at least on the scale that we see, uh, trade would not have been possible without them. Um, we obviously see smaller scale trade happening before the period that I look at, um, especially among private traders and certain, uh, especially rich sort of mercantile princes that perhaps are uh, sort of the more more typical or perhaps more familiar aspects of trade that we might see in the 16th century. Um, but into the 17th, to, to conduct trade on the scale that we're seeing and to see the increases in commercial activity that we're seeing, I think that these structures, these institutions were absolutely vital. And that's particularly important considering the weakness of the English or the British state during this period, I think. And this is something that may be, needs to be brought to the front when we're discussing these issues, that the requirement for corporations to have some of these structures in place to allow people to make complaints, to be disciplined, um, could sound like corporations that are sort of taking it upon themselves to institute laws, to become the company state, um, as was the case in certain situations, um, famously the East India Company. And that's partly true. There is clearly an imposition here. Corporations are sort of going perhaps Beyond uh, what we'd expect from business organisations, but they're doing this as a necessity in some respects, a, re- a requirement for what they see as the necessary structures for conducting trade effectively, and that certainly comes down in part to this element of a fairly weak state or a state in formation during this period.
1: But this is the, this is this is fantastic because this is you know where these charters come in. Uh, you're operating overseas. You know, years away, maybe from having a decision being made by by the actual nation state, which is in itself transforming and morphing. Um, but these charters are negotiated, right? And then and then in these charters, these corporations are giving are given these um, regulatory behaviors and and how to enforce laws overseas. Um, you care to comment on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a It's an interesting part of the relationship is that you're absolutely right that most of these companies, uh, or at least all of these companies, once they've been ratified, um, there are a couple of examples of corporations forming themselves. But generally, yes, the state uh, allows or grants a charter that allows a corporation to form. And these charters are fairly consistent. They often include quite similar uh, terms and conditions as you'd expect but often they're not very specific. Um, and I think that lack of specificity gives a lot of room for merchants to maneuver in terms of designing exactly the corporation that they want to participate in particular trades. So a good instant example of this would be the East India Company, which when it's granted its initial charter in 1600 by Queen Elizabeth, it's granted a charter that is very, very open to interpretation. The, ge- the ge- geographical areas that are defined as being within the charter overseas, are very very broad um, it includes lands that have not yet been discovered for instance as a place where this company will still have the right to enforce its laws um, but also it is given permission to develop laws and standing orders for the company to use that can do anything that the company wants so as long as the corporation and this applies across the board as long as merchants don't invent laws and standing orders that are in opposition to the laws of england they can pretty they have a lot of room to maneuver in terms of putting in place specific uh, laws and orders that they wish for so i think there's a distance there between and an, and an accepted distance this is well known and understood at the time between what the state has an interest in um, which is perhaps uh, encouraging trade providing monopolies over particularly geographic regions to to support parts of the merchant community um, to uh, exploit those particular regions and establish new trades but also there's an awareness that the state's control and the state's understanding of these issues is perhaps not as strong as the mercantile community and during debates right, about right. monopolies about whether charters work, what charters should cover, whether monopolies are successful or unsuccessful, merchants quite regularly come back to this point and say, well, we know how to trade. We're the professionals. We've been doing this for decades. And therefore, it is right that you, the state, should trust us to make the laws because we know what we're doing. Now, obviously, that's very self-serving, but I think it also highlights, importantly, this the style of relationship between the state and the crown. It's not one where Merchants, I think, are waiting to be told what to do. It's very much a back-and-forth relationship with merchants willing to stake their claim to authority over what they see as their business.
1: I think one of the things that uh, impresses me with the book is it answers uh, a student perception. Uh, many students, when I ask the question, uh, when merchant corporations formed in you know the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, what, what do you think about these people? And, you know, a lot of these students will misinterpret that somehow these guys are loose or freewheeling or doing whatever they want to make things happen. But then, I guess, but then in the book, everything is kind of codified or at least attempts to codify by some law, by some regulation to make sure that, I, I guess, the focus is success, profits. You know, and, and you need the ability to regulate behavior in order to get to success. And, and and that that's a dichotomy, I think, that needs to be talked about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to there's often this question about the role of monopolies, um, or the role of guilds, I suppose, especially in a European context. Right. Um, if we think of Sheila Ogilvy's work and for example, as guilds being or corporations is limiting the possibility for innovation um, or limiting the possibility for individuals to do strange new things. And I think what we see during the period that I write about is that corporations form an important role here for providing institutional structure after often the innovation has been sort of started, but to allow it to mature and to allow it to develop. So if again, we look at, say, um, the Levant company as an example, uh, or the muscovy company or Spanish company or Barbary Company, merchants from England have travelled to these destinations before the corporation is established, and these might be the more daring, the more uh, the merchants more willing to take a risk merchants with networks existing already into these regions, perhaps through other trades. and this will obviously this will allow the establishment of new trades, the the innovative new practices that are perhaps more in line with this freewheeling um, sort of image that we have. But then to succeed, the corporation comes in. And I think for the long-term success, uh, the corporation provides an important role in providing structure for long-term stability within these trades that perhaps private traders wouldn't have been able to achieve on their own.
1: One of the things I think is super important, uh, and you point out several times in the book, thank you so much, is that there's a civic nature to corporations uh, that they have these, a uh, civic responsibilities not just to london or to bristol but to england itself there's a corporate citizenship that's at stake here and i'm wondering if you could talk to that just briefly
0: yeah i think corporate citizenship is is vital partly for the justification of corporations in the eyes of the english state but also i think for explaining how urban society functioned during this period Um, a lot of the roles not necessarily trading corporations so much but especially livery and urban corporations a lot of the roles they performed was to organize or manage sort of day-to-day business in the city and there's definitely an awareness of the responsibility for that Um, people who are trying to obtain positions of authority within these corporations are asked to act benefit of all to understand that it's a an important role that they're taking on uh, for wider society um and there's also and this is something i I didn't speak about as much in the book uh, as i have elsewhere but many of these organizations also had elements of what we'd now call social responsibility built into their activities um companies like the east india company uh, quite famously built alongside their dockyard at blackwell um, they also built uh, a hospital, arms houses, a church. Um, and these are things that other corporations also participated in. And there's an awareness that there's a little bit of a quid pro quo. They're granted quite uh important rights and privileges that allow them to conduct their trade and to monopolize their trade but in doing so they have to promise to contribute to society and in part that might be through things like customs or the provision of ships to the crown um, in times of war but also there's an element where it's making sure that people are employed fruitfully or that wages are high or the injured sailors who have been traveling uh, on the ships of these companies are cared for and I think that's an important distinction to remember that while merchants were clearly individuals motivated by profit, um, because you know they're merchants, they're businessmen. That's you know how they live and survive. They're also motivated by other things as well. And I think recognizing how the two of those come together is quite a fruitful way for understanding this community.
1: Uh, I'm Joe Crowder, and uh, you're listening to the New Books Network, and we're talking with Edmund Smith about his book *Merchants: The Community That Shaped England's Trade and Empire*. Fifteen fifty to sixteen fifty, and I just want to follow up on that corporate citizenship. Um, it's a reciprocal thing. I mean, the, the cities need the corporations, the corporations need the cities, and and back and forth. And that it came very clear in your book, and and I'm wondering if you could talk to that just uh, one more time, just real briefly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's certainly a back and forth, and it's a back and forth that reinforces some of the structures of society um, that perhaps we would see as limiting things like social mobility these days uh, while there is this idea of quid pro quo um, as I mentioned in, in the back and forth as you said yeah, yeah yeah there's there's also an element where the monopolies in themselves are quite exclusive practices and I think again that's worth remembering that while Apprenticeship was a route into many of these corporations, and that was accessible to perhaps more people than we might imagine. At the end of the day, without completing this apprenticeship or without having family connections or without some other route into these corporations, people were excluded from participating in some of these trading activities. So, when we think about the relation to society, there is also a tension there um, between these merchants and corporations providing important structures, but also the challenging issue of these corporations limiting access and potentially stymieing uh, innovation or uh, stymieing access to some of these trades for people who might have participated in them very effectively.
1: There's a term you use in, in, in your book that has to do with the internal structure of corporations, and it was a term that I was unfamiliar with, and I'd like for the listeners to know what that term means, and that's the generality.
0: Yes. So the generality um, quite simply means the general membership of a corporation. So in the case of uh, the East India Company, that would include everybody who invests in the East India Company. They become a member of the company and therefore part of its generality. In something like uh, the Levant company, it would be people who have been allowed to join as members because they hit particular criteria and pay a due to join the company and participate in its activities. Once part of the generality, in either case, whether as an investor or as a member, being part of the generality gives you the right to participate in corporate activities, and that might include just participating in trade on your own behalf, say within a regulated trading company, but also it could mean the ability to participate in elections, to vote for who should be the officers in the company, who should be the governor of the company, and to take to have some say over the day-to-day governance of how the company should be run. So the generality is something that would number potentially into the hundreds of individuals for some of the larger companies, And during general courts, when the whole company would come together, often in the house of one of the senior merchants in in London or elsewhere, the generality would come together and be able to have a say about corporate organisation and the activities of the company. And I think that's a really important uh, thing to remember that these corporations, although they had their governors and directors sort of at the top and making orders, these were responding to a generality who actually had quite a significant say over how these organisations should be run.
1: Um, wh- I'm wondering, though, um, if non-merchant personnel, um, for example, a lawyer that the company hires, or a linguist that you know is necessary to talk Arabic or or whatever, um, and even preachers are being hired. Are, do they become part of that generality?
0: Typically, no. Uh, typically in most corporations, the generality is limited to MIA merchants. Uh, as I talk about in the book, it's this distinct professional group. Um, and organizations like the Spanish company, Levant company, Eastland company, all have very strict rules saying that nobody will be permitted to be a member unless they are a MIA merchant. And that's mainly to to keep, uh, to keep to ensure the standards and the behavioral practices that we spoke about earlier are kept. But also to ensure continued mercantile control of these organizations.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The uh, one... You 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 make a good good point in the book where gentry are most likely excluded from becoming a merchant, and that's fascinating to me as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the opposite to what I just described would probably be something like the East India Company or some of the colonial companies, like the Virginia Company, which by not having membership criteria um, for all of this period that limit mercantile participation, uh, sorry, that limit participation to only merchants, they allow in much larger groups of people who are from different backgrounds, including especially uh, members of the gentry. And this causes serious disputes. Um, In 1619, both the Virginia Company and the East India Company go through really significant disputes between its sort of standing leadership of merchants and gentry groups that coalesced, uh, especially around Edwin Sands, um, who's famously sort of overthrew the mercantile interest to a degree within the Virginia Company and changed the direction and the pattern of colonization in Virginia as a consequence. Right. In the East India Company, he was unsuccessful, and the mercantile uh, group held out and actually reimposed some of the demands about uh, mercantile participation in the leadership. But it's definitely a contest there that I think is important for understanding, again, the the value of professionalism and the value of mercantile training and identity to this community. They were certainly well aware of it and well aware that they had to keep their own value and sustain their own importance within these organizations so as not to lose out, um, especially once some of these corporations started to make quite a lot of money for investors.
1: There's a point in your book where you talk about bad corporate decisions, and uh, and I, I got to thinking that historians tend to focus a lot on the successful ones, <laughs> uh, but um, I think you you successfully took this on. You know what happens when a corporation does begin to make poor decisions? Uh, I you know internally. Uh, I guess that's where I want to go.
0: Yeah, and it's one that's often quite difficult to trace, I think, sometimes um, in the records that we have available. Obviously, corporations, corporate records are often quite uh, self-promoting. Um, but what we do see, and perhaps this is comes back to this point about the generality, is that when the corporate leadership are making decisions that the generality disagree with or that are deemed detrimental to the generality, we do start to see votes and elections taking place that push against some of these actions. Um, One example that I quite like is during the hiring process of a factor for the East India Company, um, a merchant called Mr. Brund is initially turned down by the East India Company leadership, but he's got such a high level of respect among the merchant community, he's considered such a uh, a good choice that the generality complain and eventually force the company to hire him as an employee. Um, or similarly, the Levant Company, when it starts to change its planning towards how they're going to organise the trade in currents to the Levant, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, um, the generality complain and insist that they change the direction um, of travel, as it were, for the organisation. So I think these problems, that the failings of corporations are not always as clear as they might be. And there are certainly more instances than I describe in the book of corporate actions going awry, especially overseas. But we do see pushback. And I think that's an important part of of why corporations and why thinking about merchants as a community of individuals is so useful is that we can start to uncover some of these uh, problematic um, decisions and activities taken by corporations by understanding that merchants themselves push back against them.
1: I'm gonna shift gears real quick here. I'm Joe Crowder uh, interviewing Edmund Smith. His book, Merchants, The Community That Shaped England's Trade and Empire for the New Books Network. And London becomes this humongous city, but it's not overnight. It takes a while. And there's competition in the provincial England anyway, particularly from Bristol and maybe uh, up in York. Um, But I, I, I would like for you to speak to those provincial corporations that are trying to compete against London and perhaps some of the difficulties that they faced?
0: Yeah, good question and an important one as well. Um, And I think something that's sometimes overlooked in books uh, about corporations and trade is that while London, as you say, was massive in comparison to these other cities, it was by no means alone in having a significant mercantile population. And for certain trades, um, such as the trade to the Levant or the trade to the Eastland countries, uh, so the Baltic and Poland and that part of the world, these were significantly um, engaged in by merchants from places uh, like Bristol and York. And these merchants were shaping the way in which these businesses, these trades were conducted effectively. And what we see over the course of the period that I look at is increasing the efforts on the part of London, to establish the control of London companies or London merchants um, that's pushed back against with limited success, really, uh, by merchants from these other towns, despite theoretically many of these corporations being national corporations. So if we take, say, the Spanish trade, the Spanish company that was established was intended to oversee trade to Spain for merchants across all of England. But increasingly, it started to adopt policies that made it quite difficult for non-London merchants to participate. It had meetings in a house in London that were difficult to get to. It insisted that people joining the company travel to London, which was very expensive and difficult and that sort of thing. And to push back against that was very, very difficult. Where merchants were more successful was where the organisations the in London butted against existing privileges elsewhere. So there's a really interesting dispute between the Levant Company and the merchants from Bristol, uh, where the London corporation, the Levant Company, tries to insist that Bristol's merchants start following its rules, start paying customs to the company as their charter insisted. And Bristol's merchants simply respond by saying that their charter was older and that they had rights and privileges that didn't didn't sit alongside the Levant Company's charter and therefore they could ignore it. And there's back and forth that goes between them. The state gets involved. There's dispute, debate in front of the Privy Council. And in the end, the London Company, legally speaking at least, does win the dispute. But the Bristol Company have caused such chaos and confusion about how it should be operated that its merchants just continue to operate the Levant uh, very much the same as they did before. And there I think we can see that when we talk about the, Control of these corporations, there is significant degrees of control in certain respects. But much like the state being in formation in this period, or the state being fairly weak in certain uh, respects in terms of how it can impose itself, we can see similar processes in many of these companies. It was difficult to keep perfect oversight of your territories, uh, the territories within your monopoly overseas. The Levant Company couldn't monitor every port in England, it couldn't monitor every ship going to the Mediterranean. And therefore, if it undertook this policy that wasn't agreed upon by its wider community, then parts of the community would act against it. And again, this maybe comes back to the point about the generality and pushback. Um, corporations represented the merchant community. And if they didn't do so effectively, um, the merchant community wouldn't let them. And I, I think that's useful.
1: I think it's very um I think it's good for a corporation to understand that London is right next to Westminster. (laughs) uh, It helps to have a a state, if you can call it that, uh, in the 1550s, uh, you know, be connected. I I, I guess location, location, location means something, I guess. I don't know. I I was wondering if you could, uh, if you have your book in front of you, if you could read something for me. For, for our listeners.
0: Um, okay. Uh,
1: it's the introduction to chapter three. And that first paragraph where we're looking at Mayor Thomas Middleton, you know, he's now the mayor of London. And, and I guess this is where we're going with this. Um, it's it's an imperial city and there's this public outpouring, this demonstration to celebrate this mayor. I'm wondering if you could, if you could get to that for us.
0: Yeah. Would you like me to read from the start?
1: Yeah, just that first, yeah. just that first paragraph.
0: Okay. Um, so yeah, the chapter is called "Living Together, Working Together," and it's all about, uh, as you say, this this tightly overlapping community in the city. Um, and it starts a few days after his election to the highest civic office, the new Lord Mayor of London, Thomas Middleton, emerged from the Guildhall to find a city transformed. A lavish show designed and executed by the playwright Thomas Middleton, who was no relation, had transformed the cityscape into a spectacle that honoured the new Lord Mayor, the mercantile community, and the City of London. It left no onlookers in doubt that they were at the very heart of England's commercial wealth and power. Serenaded by trumpets and song, and surrounded by merchants, citizens, and other well-wishers in their finery, Middleton's elevation to the highest civic office was a cause for celebration as he traveled from the Guildhall to Westminster and back again, the new Lord Mayor and the city's population would revel in what it meant to be part of the country's greatest city, a trading port with links to the distant corners of the world and whose wealth was unparalleled across the breadth of England's emerging empire.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. Bottom line, London is an imperial city, absolutely. Um, and, and the relationship between companies and cities it's, it's it's right here congratulations thank you so much for that reading i really appreciate it um i want to talk to you about uh merchants belonging to more than one corporation um and how they brought their expertise and kind of shopped it around i guess
0: yeah so merchants almost all merchants belong to more than one corporation um especially in london because of the ways in which training was conducted often alongside the livery corporations. So people would typically um, belong to a livery corporation where they'd completed their training or uh, who's their, who their master belonged to during the completion of their training, and then typically would join a regulated or a joint stock corporation Uh, as the facilitator for how they would go about doing their their international trade and business as fully-fledged merchants. And at the start of the period in 1550, or at least once a few corporations had been developed over the course of the second half of the 16th century, it was quite typical for merchants only to belong to one of these trading corporations as well as their livery. Um, For example, a merchant adventure trading to the Low Countries and to Germany was unlikely to also be a member of the Spanish company trading to Spain. But this started to shift and change um, towards the end of the 16th century as more and more corporations were established and merchants were more and more capable of participating in multiple trades simultaneously. And some corporations tried to stop this. The Spanish company tried to stop members of the merchant adventurers from joining because it was seen as detrimental to the business. But increasingly it became clear that merchants wanted to and could successfully be part of multiple corporations. So that's the sort of overview of where we're coming from in this. And what that meant was that because they were part of multiple corporations, it was quite common for especially more senior merchants, the merchants who would say would become directors or governors of corporations, to have experiences that intersect across these different groups. And in doing so, they were able to bring obviously knowledge, information and skills with them from one to the other. Um, if we take, say, the East India Company as an interesting example of this. In the East India Company's leadership, we see people who had backgrounds that included fairly traditional trading to, say, Germany or to Spain, but also are bringing with them uh, experience of the Muscovy Company trade, which was often uh, more difficult, more militarized, might include engagement in fishing or whaling in the North Atlantic, All merchants also participated in things like privateering activity. And we can see some of the disputes that take place in the East India companies being really an effort for the directors of this company to bring these different experiences together and to use them to build a strategy for engaging in the East Indies. Um, And that, I think, is important for understanding how not just the East India company, but how all these companies sort of lent against each other and developed approaches to doing business. That were not necessarily mutually beneficial across the board, but could certainly uh, draw upon the experiences and act in ways that they knew would bring together different types of trades. Um, so, for one obvious example, uh, the Virginia Company in the 1610s included many directors who were also directors of the East India Company. And very quickly, tobacco imports from Virginia were aligned so that they could arrive in Britain just before the East India Company fleet was sent to India, showing that sort of these connections, uh, they were quickly aware of them and were able to capitalise on these links uh, to fruitfully bring together some of these global dimensions of England's trade, even if different parts of the world were administered by different corporations.
1: Um, One of the things that um, that reminds me of is um, the Virginia Company started out it had troubles, let's just <laughs> just admit it. Um, and so this gets us to the efficacy of corporations. Um, and and there, there was something I learned in this book. There was like a bill in parliament for free trade as early as 1604. Um, I, I was just shocked by this um, because much of what this book is about is creating these regulations, creating these rules, making sure that monopolies are enforced, and yet here we have troubles in, in trade and, and the argument that, well, our corporation can do it better or our merchant society could do it better. Uh, yeah, the necessary order on the one hand, but we need deregulated access on the other. I was wondering if you could talk to that real quick.
0: Yeah, and a great question. And it comes back really to the discussion we had about the gentry earlier, that that free trade bill in parliament, a significant proponent of it was Edwin Sands who, as I mentioned yeah. earlier, later would go on to try and take over the two companies, uh, or at least gain a lot more authority over them. Um, I think the, one, of the impact, one of the impacts of the Free Trade Act was forcing a lot of the trading companies to liberalise their access, but only to a degree. And this is one where the merchant identity really came to the fore, that the Levant company, the Spanish company, and others agreed to change their policies to allow anybody to participate in the company so long as they were people who were mere merchants and had completed the correct training. So while previously, famously, I think the Levant Company only had 12 members at one point, the Free Trade Act pushed the liberalisation towards allowing larger companies, Ah, people to participate in multiple companies. And the Levant Company by 1610 uh, had hundreds of members rather than just a few dozen. So we see there pushback the the acceptance that monopolies were limiting access limiting uh, especially the input of capital and limiting the expansion of some of these trades I think was taken on board, but merchants were quite successful in ordering that sorry in uh, demonstrating that the standards that monopolies allowed for and the practices of disciplinary governance was something that was important, and many gentry members were probably unwilling to apply themselves maybe to some of these disciplinary measures, which gave merchants a uh, a little bit of wiggle room to ensure that they could sustain their, their monopolies, uh, even in face of these quite stark uh, attacks uh, on the part of uh, some merchants who were excluded, but also members of the gentry and others who weren't able to participate.
1: Um, I, I can't let things get too far out of hand because um, there's a brilliant expose in your book on the cloth trade. And what it came down to me is there's these new production methods that are learned about new innovations in production of cloth leading to new products that now need new markets. And this creates a whole new set of problems. Uh, I was hoping you could talk about that cloth trade in, in England at this time.
0: Yeah. Um, Good question. And I think the cloth trade is one of those, it's perhaps not the most exciting of trades that are taking part at the time. You know, it doesn't sound as exotic or dramatic as some of the other goods that are being exchanged, but for England's economy, the cloth trade, the woolen cloth trade is absolutely vital. The vast majority of exports that are being taken from England overseas are certain types of woolen cloth. It employs huge numbers of people in England Um, And in turn, it would obviously drive the development of other innovations um, and developments in textile manufacture that would, would continue to contribute to Britain's economic development. And what's really interesting about the cloth trade is it's also one where it's very chaotic in terms of the mercantile response, because as you say, different markets overseas want different types of cloth. And yet existing regulations in the 16th century didn't have didn't appreciate the possibility of these new markets, which made it quite difficult for merchants, say to the East Indies, um, to take with them cloths that were actually suitable for selling to markets there. There was still an expectation they would take these thick woolen broadcloths that had been the staple of England's trade in the 16th century. And what we see through the cloth trade is corporations competing with each other, corporations trying to argue for a more connected global understanding of Britain's international trade and its connections into the world economy, Um, and also the resistance to that by the more traditional industries. Um, But traditional industries that are very, very large scale, and there's an awareness of that, that if you start to deregulate the cloth trade and the cloth industry in Britain, you run the risk, uh, or at least it was believed at the time, you ran the risk of causing destitution and poverty among cloth workers um, in England. So to develop a means of uh, allowing for the production of certain new types of products, these trading companies had to engage very deeply with debates about domestic production and the domestic economy. And some of the writers, some of the thinkers at the time who wrote about this issue set, um, set up, set the foundations for ongoing debates about mercantilism and free trade and economic thought that would stimulate uh, an awful lot of the history of economic thought over the following century. So I think it's it's a dynamic that's really important to examine in detail.
1: Uh, I'm Joe crawlder I'm talking with uh, Edmund Smith about his book, Merchants, The Community That Shaped England's Trade and Empire. And Edmund, what's next on your plate?
0: Thanks. Um, so actually it follows on very well from the my last comment really that this book is as, as i've said it, i see it as foundational this period of development and expansion um up till around 1650 i think sets the sets the groundwork um institutionally speaking at least for many of the uh economic developments we see in the in the consequent century and a half and my next book project um which is provisionally uh, titled Risky Business. It's really (laughs) setting out to to look at that next stage, but to shift slightly away from purely the merchant community into the wider, what might be called entrepreneurial activity, sorry, entrepreneurial community. So bringing in gentry members, uh, bringing in craftspeople, bringing in manufacturers, but trying to understand how sort of this development of entrepreneurial uh, activity butted against some of these traditional or what had become traditional forms of economic organisation and to think about uh, how Britain's economy developed from around 1650 through to about 1800 and in doing so reminding myself uh, and building in an examination of empire, thinking about how extractive colonialized, uh, colonialism in the Caribbean um, affected uh, economic development or the exploitation of enslaved people um, and constantly trying to bring together these histories of innovation and scientific development and entrepreneurship in England with this history of empire and international trade and exploitation um, and trying to use those two together to develop a better understanding of what we mean by sort of capitalist development during this period
1: and it's so intertwined um and it, it's hard for us to write about that you know you got to unravel it piece by piece and then put it back together in a story i think what you wrote here with uh, merchants the community that shaped england's trade and empire is is just that a great unraveling and and reinstitution of what merchants were in this period of time thank you so much for talking with me
0: thank you very much for having me it's been Great pleasure to talk to you.